All I'm telling you is if you can get James Earl Jones to do your voiceover for your sermon bumper thingy, it's a good day. You know what I'm saying? Hey, welcome to Keystone. Special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. Before we dig into the content, I want to give you uh, two invitations, two opportunities that are happening during this seven-week series. The first one we've called free-range, gluten-free, organic big idea groups, okay? So if you're like in the whole Joanna Gaines thing, if you have your own chickens because you don't think Meyer's chickens are good enough for you or whatever, right? This is a great opportunity for you. Uh, big idea groups are the small groups here at Keystone, and they've been going on for literally decades. And what we wanted to do this fall is to kind of throw the gates open and invite all of you to test drive a big idea group during this series. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible. And so instead of having an event and placing you with a bunch of other people from church you don't know, we would just like to encourage you to get a group of people you already do know. Uh, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's somebody sitting next to you right now, right? It could be a group of single people, a group of couples, kind of a group of all millennials or a group of millennials to baby boomers and everybody in between. Doesn't matter, no rules. Meet in the morning, meet at night. Just take with you the program you received on the way in. And there are some questions that I wrote this week that go along with the talk. And so I will ask the awkward questions for you, and you can just have a conversation and interact with this material. What we find around here is that people grow more in their faith when they sit in a circle and discuss it and not just sit in a row and experience it. Uh, one other thing, if you have a neighbor, they don't attend Keystone, you're like, how will they know what we're going to talk about? Friends, we have the internet. Have you found this internet thing? I think it's going places, okay, but you can listen to the talk on demand anytime at our website or on iTunes. You could even listen to it as you're driving on the way to your small group, and they will think, dude, that person has some serious memory, but you just listened to it. You know what I'm saying? That's how that goes. So anyway, give that a try this week, um, and just an opportunity again to interact with the material. The second thing is, uh, if you were here in the spring, a whole bunch of us read through the New Testament together, and then over the summer, more and more of you approached me and said, hey, when are we doing that again? I liked reading the Bible every day, or at least you know five or six days a week, but I just don't know where to start. Could we do another sort of coordinated reading thing? And this is another opportunity happening during this series. We picked up another one of the series of books we used last time. This one, sections of the Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as prayers of ancient Israel, the leadership of ancient Israel, these prayers that have been passed on to us. An incredible opportunity to see how they talked to God, and that maybe that might inform how we talk to God. So if you want to do this uh, with my wife and I, what you got to do is just go over to the Welcome Center. There are these books there. We're asking for a $10 donation. If that's an obstacle, just take one. We'd love to get one in your hands. That reading plan, and there's a bookmark that comes with it, gives you the reading plan that actually starts tomorrow. So that's a couple opportunities for you to consider. Uh, and as far as our new series, and by the way, if you're visiting, well done. You picked out the week we're starting something new. Uh, the series, The Prayer, is all about, well, it's all about prayer, right? And uh, what we decided this time is we would opt for clarity over creativity. But what we're going to do for seven weeks this fall is explore the prayer Jesus taught to his first disciples. And if you grew up in church, you've probably recited this prayer hundreds of times. If you didn't grow up in church, you're still very familiar with this prayer because, friends, this isn't just a prayer. This is... The, see, now you know where we got the title, right? Yeah, right. Now here's why. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first followers noticed something. He didn't pray like all the other people prayed. And so one day they came and they asked him, 
See, because there was something very special about Jesus, everybody could see that he had a very unique and undeniable connection to God. Everywhere Jesus went, it was like heaven was invading earth. Blind people were seeing again. Deaf people were hearing again. And even a couple of times, somebody who had been dead started breathing again. So needless to say, when that happens, you capture the attention of the people around you. And so Jesus' disciples reasoned that, man, if Jesus was praying a different sort of way than they were used to, they wanted to follow Jesus' example. So one day they come up to him and they just ask him, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Here's what he said. Jesus says, uh, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And you may have grown up in a translation that said, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Same idea. Um, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's what Jesus instructs his followers to pray. And, and if we're honest, uh, the prayer that Jesus offers here isn't much like the prayers many of us typically pray. And in preparation for today, I kind of went back into my memory and thought, okay, prayer as a child in my house, and my mom's here, so we'll have some fun with this, uh, went a little bit like this. We, I remember praying before meals, and maybe some of you did this growing up, maybe some of you still do it. Our prayer before meal was a thing of beauty and grace. It was very efficient. Here's what we said. We said, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. F food. Yeah, it it's not a great prayer, right? It doesn't really rhyme that well, but I would argue we were very consistent with it. Okay, then I remembered another prayer that we prayed before bed, uh, sort of like you want to bless the kids and you know, make sure that they have, uh, you know, God is watching over them, they have good dreams, this sort of prayer. This was the prayer that we prayed, and just spoiler alert, it was a little strange. Here we go. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I was five when we started praying this prayer, right? I'm not even sure theologically there's anything to this prayer. But anyway, if I should die before I wake, have a nice night, kids. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to take. And of course, which leaves you thinking, what happens if he doesn't? I don't know, right? I should tell you that after several years of counseling, my brother and I are doing fine. Okay, it's all good. Uh, but those were the first two prayers I can remember as a kid. Then I remember when I started praying on my own. And so, you know, what sort of happens when we just start praying naturally? And, and for me, uh, especially in hindsight, I remember thinking, I'd say the same sorts of things over and over again. I did a summary for you. It goes like this. Uh, my prayer life was like, bless me, help me. You're going to see a theme. Okay. Bless me, help me, rescue me, heal me, forgive me. And it's like, you know, it would have different flavors, but that was sort of the gist of my prayer life. It was all about me. And then one day I realized if God had answered every prayer I had prayed in the past year, pretty much the only person on the planet that would be any better off is me, <laughs> which I'm not sure that, that that's what God has in mind for prayer. Now, to be clear, I don't necessarily want to convince you to stop praying for these things. It's totally fine. But what I want to argue with this series is that, is that there's a bigger and better way to understand prayer. And that Jesus uniquely understood the power and the potential of prayer. So he taught his followers to pray bigger prayers and to pray better prayers. And for the next seven weeks, I'm going to show you what I mean. What we're going to do is explore the seven images that Jesus uses when assembling what has become known as the Lord's Prayer. And they're, again, they're right from the Lord's Prayer. Here they are. The seven images go like this. Father, heaven, 
the name, speaking of the name of God, this is your kingdom come, your daily bread, forgiveness, and temptation. I say, what is it about these seven things that Jesus wanted to bring to the fronts of our minds as we converse with God? And so today we get to talk about our Father in heaven or our Heavenly Father. And what I want to argue this morning is that how we think about God matters a lot if we're going to try to build a relationship of trust and love with him. And in ancient Israel, around the time Jesus was living, it really wasn't all that natural to think of God as Father. Now, now, now to be fair, the Old Testament prophets referred to God as Father at least 10 times that I could find, maybe more. And even there were Jewish prayers in the ancient world that began with our Father. But, but what I want to argue this morning is that the conditional nature of Israel's relationship with God led them to think of God more as the founder of their nation than as their heavenly father. Let me explain what I mean by that. The second book in the Old Testament of your Bibles is called Exodus. And the story of the Exodus, um, it's the story of God rescuing the descendants of a man named Israel from slavery in Egypt. And after delivering them from slavery, he brings them to a mountain called Sinai, the famous Mount Sinai, and he makes a covenant, an agreement, a testament with them through their leader, Moses. And I brought a picture of what most of us think of when we think of Moses, of course, um, the great Charlton Heston here, who, by the way, was not Jewish at all, but that's okay. I also would like to note that whatever language this is, it's not a real language. That's just great. But I don't think anybody noticed that till me thousands of years later. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. So uh, God makes a deal with the nation of Israel through their leader, Moses. He cuts a covenant with them. And, and here's a definition of covenant from our friends at dictionary.com. The covenant is an agreement between two or more parties to do or not do something specified. So the covenant at Mount Sinai defined the terms of relationship between God and Israel. Here's what God said to them. It's found in Exodus chapter 19. He says, you, and the you here is plural. So if we were down south, we'd say y'all. We clear on that. So y'all yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you all on eagle's wings and brought you all to myself. So he's like, this is, it was me who rescued you. Then he continues. He says, now, if, and hang on to that, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And right after God says this, he gives them the famous 10 commandments. And then shortly thereafter, 603 more for a total of 613. God says, in effect, if you obey me fully, then you will be my treasured possession. Now, Bible nerds choose to or look at God's covenant with Israel as something they call a bilateral suzerainty treaty. And so if you want to really feel smart with your friends, okay, bust this out, be like, oh yeah, it's a bilateral suzerainty treaty. Got it. Yeah, that's really great. And a bilateral suzerainty treaty was a type of treaty in the ancient world that was an agreement between two unequal parties. So the greater power, in this case God, the suzerain, dictates the terms to the lesser power or the vassal. That, that's how they define the terms of relationship. God says, in effect, keep my commands and I'll keep you safe, which sounds great. But, and this is key, the covenant also worked the other way. If Israel didn't keep their end of the deal, 
God was under no obligation to keep his. I think that bears repeating. If Israel didn't keep their end of the deal, God was under no obligation to keep his. What's more, the covenant at Sinai was made between God and the nation of Israel, not individuals within the nation. And what this meant was, even if individuals were holding to the terms of God's covenant, and if individuals were obeying him fully, if that were possible, individuals could still be punished because they were part of the broader nation who was not keeping their end of the deal with God. And what I want to argue is that all of this made it very difficult for the Jewish people to think of God as father. The terms of relationship God made with Israel weren't much like the sorts of relationships fathers have with their children. In fact, the most popular prayers prayed by Jewish people even to this day point more to the power and the majesty of God than his role as Heavenly Father. A little over a year ago, I took a course in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, uh, because I love you. No, it was because I had to take it for a degree I was working on. But um, as part of that, I got to learn to speak a little bit of the Hebrew language. And Hebrew is a beautiful language. People think French is the language of love. I would argue it's Hebrew because Hebrew is filled with these glorious sounds that kind of are like a cat struggling to pass a hairball. Kind of like, like this sort of thing, real, real guttural. So what I want to do is I want to bust out a little bit of Hebrew for you so you can hear a little bit of Hebrew, and then I want to tell you what I just said. Uh, this is the prayer that Jewish people to this day will pray before a meal if they're praying in Hebrew. They say it like this. Baruch atah Adonai, melech acholam. Isn't that great? Thank you. All right. There, yeah. So basically what they're saying there is, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, right? It's big and God is powerful and we want to acknowledge him. And while this certainly is a fair way to address God, it emphasizes his power and his majesty and not the sort of relationship he desires with people. When I try to imagine the king of the universe, I don't think, oh yeah, that's dad, right? Uh, so Jesus for his followers would have been familiar with the idea of God as father, but their experience with God would have felt more like God as their nation's founder and deliverer. That's why when Jesus teaches his followers to address God as father, it pointed to a shift that was coming in the way people related to God. Father was one of the many ways that people in the ancient world addressed God, but Jesus sought to move that language to the front of the hearts and minds of his followers because he knew something they didn't. Jesus was about to draft a new covenant a new testament, a new arrangement between people and God that changed everything and made the king of the universe feel more like a heavenly father. So to show you what I mean, um, we need to return once again to a passage of scripture that we come back to a lot around here. It's the Last Supper. And this wasn't just any dinner. Jesus and his disciples had traveled to the city of Jerusalem to be a part of the annual celebration, the Passover, commemorating the exodus from Egypt, the rescue from slavery. And the meal they enjoyed was rich with the symbolism of their rescue that culminated in the covenant God made at Mount Sinai. So after this meal, Jesus does something that would have been shocking, and an early Jesus follower named Luke describes it for us. It goes like this. In the same way, after the supper... Jesus took the cup. So this would have been a cup of wine that they believed represented the redemption, the rescue 
that God had given them. It was the cup of redemption. Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And, and we read that and go, yeah, 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 right, big deal. They would have been absolutely amazed and confused. Be, remember, Jesus' first followers were Jewish, and they already were in a covenant with God. It's like the, the covenant made through Moses at Mount Sinai. It involved them bringing animals to priests to be slaughtered when they did something to break relationship with God. The blood of the animals paid the debt of their sins. That was how the covenant had worked for 1,000 years. That was how you made it right when you violated the if-then terms of God's covenant. And the only context Jesus' disciples would have had for any sort of new covenant, that a new covenant was coming, came from the writings of an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah 600 years earlier. Here's what Jeremiah says, and again, 600 years before the Last Supper. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. He goes on, he says, It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because, here we go, they broke my covenant. And this again was written to those people. So they would have been, yes, we did. In fact, we did over and over and over again because the terms of the covenant were we obey you fully and well, <clears throat> we're still working on that, right? And so it would, uh, the new covenant would be very different it would not require the full obedience on the parts of the nations or individuals. This time, God would eliminate the need for animal sacrifice, and he would make a new covenant for every nation and every generation. Moreover, Jeremiah tells us this, that God says, For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. In other words, God's new covenant or agreement wasn't going to be based on human faithfulness. God wasn't going to require people to keep their promises to him. He alone would keep his promises to them. And all that would be required for an individual to find peace with God is trust or belief. Trust and belief, not obedience, would be the way to peace with God. That was the promise for hundreds of years leading up to the time of Jesus. And that was the promise Jesus referenced when describing a new covenant in his blood. And the disciples were confused. Because that's great, Jesus, a new covenant in your blood. Hate to point this out, you're not bleeding. So is this sort of a metaphor? What are you getting after? But then shortly after the Last Supper, everything changed for Jesus. He was arrested and falsely accused and beaten and tried and sentenced to death and hung on a cross and the gospel writers tell us he bled to death to inaugurate something new. A new covenant between people and God. A new way for people to enter a relationship with God. Jesus' followers realized that his blood has the power to pay for all sins in all times for all who believe. In other words, Jesus did for people what we could never do for ourselves. And as individuals, after we receive that reality, we become a child of God. That's the language the New Testament writers use. In fact, that, that's sort of the gist of the whole New Testament. Like, what's this about? It's like, because of Jesus, we can be adopted into God's family. You say, well, where do you see that? Well, in one of the accounts of Jesus' life, an early follower named John says it this way, right at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, those who put their trust on where they stand with God in him, he gave the right to become, what does it say? Children 
of God. And an obvious question, how are children of God to think of God? As their heavenly father. And so with the time that remains, I want to note three things about fathers that help us understand the sort of relationship God desires with us and why 20 times Jesus refers to God as our father in heaven or our heavenly father. So here's number one. Fathers, and even imperfect fathers, love their children. Jesus wants us to think of God as a heavenly father because fathers love their children. As many of you know, I have four sons. And I found a great picture that displays how much I love them. Look, yes, it even says love. I was like, that's just such a great picture. Anyway, um, I remember meeting each of my sons for the first time. I remember the first time I looked at them, like they came into the world slimy and kind of weird looking, a little bit like Yoda, right? And they just came out screaming at me. And nonetheless, in that moment, each one of them captured my heart. And if you're here and you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. I knew in an instant I would jump in front of a train to save them. And to be clear, none of them had done anything to earn my love. They were born loved. And I think this is one reason why Jesus wants us to address God as Heavenly Father. If we are his children, then he loves us. And you can't earn something you already have. And you can't lose something you didn't earn in the first place. And for the rest of my life, I am bound to love my boys, even in those moments when they take after their mom and are non-compliant. <laughs> She's not here yet. I'll have to adjust that next service. We'll just, let's just keep that between us. Okay. <clears throat> There's nothing they could do that would change the fact that they are my sons. Their behavior does not negate their identity. So let me ask you a question as we wrap up that first point. What would change if you believed that your heavenly father loved you not because of what you've done, but just because of who you are? What would that change? I think this helps us see why Jesus wants us to think of God as our heavenly father, because this changes everything. Second, second idea. So fathers, um, fathers love their kids. Second idea goes like this. Fathers, even imperfect fathers, are providers. Fathers are providers. When functioning as they are intended, fathers are amazing things. They're compelled by an indescribable love for their children. When my boys are in need, not just in want, but in need, I would do anything to meet their needs. Jesus taught that the same thing is true of your heavenly father. He actually instructed his followers not to worry because their heavenly father will provide. Here's, here's what Jesus says one day. He says, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? He says, for the pagans, those are the people that don't even believe in God. The pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father, your heavenly father knows that you need them. Jesus is implying here that trust in a, your heavenly father and worry in this life are incompatible roommates in the human heart. If you lean towards trust, worry is pushed out. And if you embrace worry, trust is pushed out. Jesus says, whatever comes, you need to realize that you have a heavenly father and fathers are in the business of providing for their children. Years ago, I had a conversation with a friend that I'll never forget um, around this idea, and he was a pastor uh, living over in the Flint area, 
And he went through a season of unemployment and that happened to coincide with the birth of their fourth kid, which he does not recommend, by the way. Uh, and so resources were very, very scarce. They were uh, hours away from family. And he said he remembers the day, baby was maybe four or five months old, when his wife came to him and said, we're out of diapers and we're out of wipes, which is a dangerous thing, right? We're out of diapers, we're out of wipes, and uh, we're out of resources. I don't know what to do. And so uh, she looks at him, who was the pastor, and says, we should pray about this. And he confessed he thought that was a ridiculous idea. And he's the pastor. Isn't that great? Yeah. <clears throat> the girls are almost always ahead of us on this stuff, guys. Anyway, so he said, I didn't know what else to do, so we just prayed. And she wanted to get down on our knees, and he said, I thought that was silly too, but I'm like, Let's give it a try. So he said, I got down on the knees. We prayed to God, just said, God, we need you to provide. It was because it was a really simple prayer. It wasn't any, you're not going to write a book on how to get what you need, whatever. But just, God, we need you to provide. And he said, and the next morning we woke up and there was a box on our front doorstep and a delivery guy had dropped off a whole bunch of baby supplies from someone who wanted to remain anonymous. There were diapers there were wipes. There was formula. He looked at me and he said, I call this the moment I received butt wipes from heaven. Okay? <laughs> this, he goes, the timing was weird and eerie. But he said, never again will I doubt that my heavenly father is in the business of providing for me. Let me ask you a question. What would change if you believed that your heavenly father really would provide for your needs. Think about the peace. Not always how you want, when you want. They still ran out of diapers. It was one really bad night, right? But, but what, if you, what would change if you believed your heavenly father would provide for your needs? The point number two, fathers are providers. Point number three, fathers instruct their children on how to live. Uh, if you love your children, you're in the business of helping them live wisely and avoid the consequences that can so easily invade our realities and complicate life. You want the best for your kids. And I think the same is true for your heavenly father. He sends Jesus not just to die on the cross, but he sends Jesus to show us how to live. And if we're honest, our best move is always to trust God with our choices because he's the one who designed life and he knows us better than we know ourselves. And so as you read the New Testament and you read the teachings of Jesus and you start to go, I just don't feel like that's something I'm going to do naturally. I think Jesus might say to you, do you trust your heavenly father? Do you trust? Because Jesus did say to his disciples one day, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So by the way, just focus on here, right? Do what I ask you to do and you will be tapping into divine design. You will avoid consequences. You will avoid regret. It's a better way to live because fathers instruct their children on how to live because they love them. And your heavenly father sent me to instruct you how to live because he loves you. So one last question, where in your life do you need to trust that your heavenly father knows best? That sounds like a TV show, right? Where in your life would you say, you know, I know he wants me to go left and I'm going right. And where in your life do you need to say, okay, I, I guess that's true. If you're, if you're the heavenly father and you love me, I need to trust you about where life is found. Where is that for you? And maybe even this week, sort of to consider that and say, you know, maybe I need to, the biblical word is repent, turn from my way and return to the path that God has laid for me. Fathers love their kids. Fathers provide for their kids. Fathers instruct their kids how to live. 
So friends, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he begins by describing God as their heavenly father. Because this perspective unlocks the potential to build a relationship with him. This perspective reminds us how much we are loved, that he has what we need and is in the business of providing, and that he has shown us the path of life and invites us to follow. Just stand and I'll close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be praised. Give us this day our daily bread. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to forgive when people hurt us and help us to flee from temptation. Help us to trust that you love us and that your way really is the path of life. This morning in this place, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross, for that new covenant, that new identity. And I pray that as we live into that reality, we would continue to fall more and more in love with you, that we would love because you first loved us. And so we bless you, we celebrate you, we thank you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part two of the prayer.